This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And welcome, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be at this very moment here. I'm in sunny Southern California. It is 9 a.m. And uh, if you are back east, it's probably noon right now. But anyway, glad to have you here with me. I'm Dr. Jeff Werber, your host for the next 30 minutes here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Best with Dr. Jeff. We're here for you. We're here for your pets. We're here to answer your questions. We're here to educate you, just kind of make you, I'm sure you're all great pet parents. We're trying to make you even better, if, if that's possible. So um, I just kind of like you keep you abreast of what's going on in, in our field and uh, maybe give you a little bit of information that you could share with your friends and also just to help you do a better job of what you're doing, though I'm sure it's a pretty good job already. So um, how to get a hold of me? Very easy. Good old-fashioned phone. Call toll-free 877-385-8882. Once again, it's 877-385-8882. And we can link you right here with me and we can uh, talk about your pet, friend's pet, whatever the case may be. So as many of our listeners know, we, um, I do like to sort of go through news of the week of the last couple of weeks from the AHA, that's the American Animal Hospital Association news stat. Also, I get the AVMA, which is the American Veterinary Medical Association smart brief. So these are just kind of ways that I can, stories and things that, you know, when I know and I've been, this lesson is like embedded and grained in my head. But anyway, actually, I was in vet school about 40 years ago starting. So uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, yes, I, uh, I started back in 1980. Here we are close to, uh, 2020. It's a long time. So in medicine, they say that every five years, half of what was known to be gospel is now obsolete. So when you think someone like me, who's been out for, you know, 35 years or, 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 but learning things 40 years ago, that that's true. I mean, I can pull out old notes. I pull out old textbooks and I laugh. I mean, some of the medications, some of the things we use, some of the anesthetic agents we use, you can't even find references for them anymore. So you really have to stay current. And that's kind of one of the things I like to do. So um, I went through some of the stories that might be applicable to many of us. One is be careful of pet turtles. We've heard so much lately about salmonella and raw diets and things like that. And again, there's some meat there, pardon the pun, to things like certain raw foods. But Pet turtles, in their feces, in their droppings, they are loaded with salmonella. And um, so what happens is then it gets on your hands when you handle them or your kids' hands, and then they don't wash their hands. And then they go grab their sandwich or their apple, and they're giving themselves salmonella, contaminating their tanks and also whatever habitats you have. So that's why many in many states, the little pet, you know, little turtles, box turtles are outlawed because they are really a host, a tremendous host for salmonella. So it's something we really want you to uh, be aware of and um, maybe think twice before getting your little toddler a cute little turtle. And they are cute. Oh, so coming up in a couple of weeks, it's, uh, boy, it's coming up in, uh, yeah, like in uh, two and a half weeks, we are we have Halloween. And it's cute. Do you realize, just to give you a statistic that'll possibly blow your mind, it did mine, that last year, last year, Americans spent over $3 million on pet costumes. So not only are you costuming your kids, they're buying pet costumes, and there are some, some concerns about pets and pet costumes. First of all, the simple one, the story was about how when 
animals, when dogs, for example, are really not going for it and you're forcing them into it, it could be dangerous because they're going to fidget. They're going to probably freeze up there. They may even scratch or bite. You can tell if you start putting this thing on your dog and he's not going for it, don't force it. Now, some dogs are cute. I've seen some of the most adorable Halloween costumes for pets. And you can go on the Internet and you can see, I mean, tons of them. But I would say that if you have the right dog for it, go for it now. But let me let me explain a few other things. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Halloween as we got really pre Halloween. But a lot of the costumes they are wearing are potentially protecting their eyes, covering their faces a little bit. It's already difficult for them to see it as it's dark now. It's, everyone's walking around trick-or-treating. You have your dog with you who's typically normally pretty good with strangers, uh, sure. But those are strangers they recognize. We've already been through this. We've talked about this, how dogs have amazing sense of facial recognition. So you can smirk. You can smile. You can frown. And they can see the difference. They can read it. It, it blows my mind. You know, we think that their vision is their worst sense. I take a walk or run in my neighborhood, and I pass a friend's house whose dog I take care of. And if that curtain is open and he's sitting by that front window and I can be two blocks away approaching, he starts going nuts. So they really under, they can have an amazing sense to recognize facial features and outline of a face. And they make it an immediate association. So here you are, you're walking your dog outside and those little things approaching are not the normal kids and faces that they see. And it can turn a really sweet dog into a nasty dog. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get a little closer to Halloween. But just know, test it out with a pet costume first. And if they're not going for it, let your dogs just be dogs. Here's one. Uber is testing something in seven major cities and metropolitan areas. And that is Uber, where you can take your pets. Now, as it is now, if you have a service animal and they're certified, you can run regular Ubers and there's no extra charge for having the pet. But if you just want to travel someplace and you want to take your pet, say, down to the beach or down to the park or whatever, you can order up an Uber uh, with pets and in these cities. I didn't see which ones they are, but there are seven sort of metropolitan areas. And uh, there's a small surcharge. And here's one. The driver, however, has the final say as to whether or not he or she wants to take your pet. So, for example, let's say they answer the call. And what's joining you in the car is a 150-pound Great Dane. They might say, uh, no. So, and that, and that is their prerogative. But anyway, it's pretty interesting and cool that they're testing it out. So um, be on the lookout if you um, – look, more and more people are using Uber, Lyft, and things like that. And they have to go to the veterinarian, and they're going to have to take the dogs or their cats. So – I think just know you might want to promote it a little bit to your clients that typically, I mean, my son has two friends now that gave up their cars and all they do is Uber. When you think about it, he says it's costing him so much less money, no gas, no insurance, no car payment. And he says it's much, much less expensive in the long haul for him. So it depends where, you know, how far you work, how often you usually drive. But I think that's, it's happening. It's really happening. Cats. We know that the number one killer of cats probably is kidney disease, kidney failure. We've talked about it a lot. And um, so a paper just came out that clearly uh, they were studying Persian cats and the top of the list of mortality in the Persian cat is going to be kidney failure. So when we recommend, when you go to your vet and you have a cat that's hitting a senior, you know, maybe seven, uh, seven might be a little, maybe eight or nine for sure. And the cat is doing beautifully. 100% not a single thing wrong. 
and your doctor says, oh, my God, eight years of age, it's time to, it's, it's, that's what we think about seniors, time to run that blood test. Let them or let her because it's very important. The way we find out these things early enough to make a difference is by catching things early. And the same holds true for hyperthyroidism in a cat. Every cat above seven, when I am doing lab work, for whatever reason, even if it's a pre-anesthetic, and we don't have this data yet, I'm going to, going to include the thyroid testing. And for me, that is just the regular T4, and also one called T4 by ED. ED is equilibrium dialysis. And the reason for that is that it's a better test that is not affected by the rest of the health status of that cat. Oftentimes, we'll see something, especially in dogs, called sick thyroid syndrome. And you can have a lot of dogs show up with low thyroid, which is the opposite of what cats have. And your doctor may think, oh, my God, we're low thyroid. We need to start thyroid supplementation. No, absolutely not. That test by itself is not a good test to diagnose the thyroid changes, the hypothyroidism in a dog. Um, we need to get the ED or do what's called a TSH stim test. So there are other, there are better tests to look for thyroid stimulating hormone. So for example, if you have high thyroid stimulating hormone, but you have low T4, then that's also a good indicator that we have a problem. But if the TSH is totally normal or low, so you don't, you're not, you don't want to make the call yet as to why this animal is, is showing up as a hypothyroid. Cats on the other hand are hyperthyroid. And uh, it's a big problem. And, and oftentimes, because of their hyperthyroid state, and because of the fact that the blood is coursing through the body much more quickly because of the high heart rate, which happens with hyperthyroidism, then some of the pre-existing or possibly existing kidney disease is being a little bit masked. So there was a study out, although it was noted that these cats, when you treat them for their hyperthyroidism, they, be, they show up with kidney disease. And the thought was, oh, my God, that medicine that we're using is ruining the kidneys. No, it's nothing. It's not, it's not a causative problem. It is just allowing us to better elucidate the true kidney function once we normalize the thyroid function. So anyway, very important to keep that in mind. Speaking of cats and you know, when you're a scientist, clearly I'm not. When you're a scientist, you like to study everything that looks like, hmm, that'd be interesting. Maybe we should study that. So when cats mark, if you have a cat that marks in your house, I guarantee you are aware of it because you can pick up that scent and it is, and not only can you, you may not pick it up as much as your neighbors and friends that come over to visit because you become so used to it, it becomes sort of like a background noise. It's just there and you don't sort of react to it. Someone else comes in, in your house and you go, hmm, uh, you have cats. <laughs> so uh, anyway, they did a, a number of things. So they examined the microbial cultures of what is going on. What is What are these cats secreting when they're quote unquote marking? And 83% of the bacteria is called, big name, $10 word, tesserococcus. The tesserococcus bacteria accounted for 83% in this one Bengal cat they tested. Then there's some bacteroides and anaerococcus and uh, peptomyphilis and finger, all these weird, weird diseases. But I mean, weird um, bacteria that have obviously a scent, but they isolated 51, got this, 51 chemicals, which contribute to the odor. So that's, that's a lot of stuff going on in there. So 
I mean, cats, they got it. And now we just got to make sure we train them and teach them not to mark, but to go in their litter boxes. And one last thing before we break, and this has been ongoing. We have been changing our minds. I don't know what Dr. Google is saying right now, but I will tell you that if you have the control and the ability, you do not want to spay your animals before six months of age, period, your dogs especially, not before six months. Because the thought was, and it was just empirical data, and again, empirical data, it just means that what a lot of people recognize as happening to their pets, their own pets, the behaviorists look into it, they chime in, but there were no scientific studies. Well, now there is one, that early spay before six months of age can increase the risk of urinary incontinence. There was a study out of the United Kingdom where they say about three or 4% of dogs do have urinary incontinence, which is a small percent. But of those that did statistically significant, that the ones that were pre-puberly spayed were the ones that as later on in life end up with urinary incontinence. There are also certain breeds that top the list. I think there were Visas and, and Weimaraners, Danes. It was a, a number of dogs. But anyway, that's really important. Dalmatians. So that's really important to know if you can now. There are other things, we've talked about it before, and I love to talk about this because I, 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 look, you can teach an old dog new tricks. I have changed my recommendations based on new scientific data, and I don't like to spay any dog now until they're at least a year. Not any dog, especially the, the, the large breed. I should say any large breed dog because of the study that was done on Rottweilers that noted an increased incidence, huge, 35% greater incidence in the female, 65% greater incidence in the male of bone cancer later on in life and bone cancer could any large breed dog. So even though the study was done on Rotties, I extrapolate myself and I try to convince people, wait until they're at least a year of age. I know there's some out there that, that want to wait up to a year and a half or even two. I'm not going to argue. But the one thing I will argue, and now a lot of data out there, scientific, uh, if you have a golden retriever, you may never want to spay or neuter. And there's plenty of data out there now with goldens. The tests and the things they did did not apply to, to Labrador retrievers, which is a percent, potentially a relative. They look very similar um, or flat coats. But golden retrievers seem to end up with more problems secondary to being spayed or neutered then the risk of the diseases that we spay or neuter them for, as far as other dogs, like mammary disease and for dogs, testicular disease and, and prostate disease, etc. There is more cancer that they get from not having those sexual hormones. Uh, so with that, I'm going to leave you and we're going to go for a quick break. We'll be back in just a few. Do not go away. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite is nutrition. Pick up two bottles of Lico Chops. Get the third bottle free. New improved Lico Chops with omega-3, omega-6, vitamin E. And now, six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. Try Lico Chops. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. 
And welcome. We're back here live with Dr. Jeff Werber here on Pet Life Radio. It's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. So um, I started talking at this a couple of weeks ago, and then we, we uh, had such a busy week last week, we didn't have a chance to uh, finish up. We were talking about allergies. And um, diet, we got to the point of you know, understanding locations in the body where we can sort of get a feel for in a dog where what the source of the allergen is. In a cat, we talked about miliary dermatitis, where there's no such luck. It can manifest in many different ways, and regardless of the allergen, there's no rhyme or reason. Whereas dogs, we know lower rump, the back, you're thinking fleas, in the inside of the groin, in the belly, you're thinking atopy, going after the feet, maybe the ears, you're thinking food, rubbing the face, food. Um, so, you know, we know that there are a lot of possibilities, but how do we really make a diagnosis? What's the best way to make a diagnosis? So when it comes to food, there's only one real good way to make a diagnosis, and that is what we call food elimination. And when it comes to the other allergens, the best way to really diagnose the culprit or culprits, which is more likely the case, is through allergy testing. The industry standard way back, which was what they used in kids, was this skin scratch testing. That's where they would shave a patch of skin, usually on the side of the dog, and they would make little dots, a grid of all the different allergens, and they would inject very superficially, which is called intradermally, the different allergen extracts into the skin, and they would grade. There was this little subjectivity here. They would grade the reaction, the wheel that would pop up against a saline norm, okay? So that was the control, was just sterile saline. And if it was no reaction to the one no more than sterile saline, then we figured there was no allergy. If it would blow up, like blow up, then we think there's allergy. That was typically done by a board-certified veterinary dermatologist, though there were some GPs that, that were doing it. I never did, only because the, the antigens are very, very expensive, and you have to really do a lot of them to get to the point of reading it well and really knowing that you're doing the right, you're coming up with the right diagnosis. Then comes the uh, serum testing, which became, and it, both on the human side as well, is becoming more of the standard. I, you know, when it got to the point where I would send a case for allergy testing to the allergist. And I would see the result from one of the companies that does the serum testing. And I was saying, I didn't need to send the dog to you so you can do what I was going to do or could have done. So now many of us general practitioners can do the blood or serum testing. There are a number of really good companies out there that do a great job. And what they're doing is they're testing for the reaction by testing for the presence of, they do a test of IgE which is one of the immunoglobulins that is very high when it comes to allergies. Also, they do a little test for IgM as well. So the feeling is that if it's really high, then there's a reason for it. The body is trying like heck to fight something. So I would just keep that in mind. So it's called serum testing. Uh, it's, uh, it could be costly. It could be anywhere from you know 350 to, to 475 or even 500, depending on what you're testing for, because they can also do, they do all the, the weeds, the grasses, the trees, they do the household allergens like tobacco and wool and kapok and, and cotton and dog dander and human dander, cigarette smoke, just all those things. And then there's also, they can test for the fungal diseases and they send you the report. And once you have the report of those antigens, allergens that your dog is sensitive to, then they can go and make up the allergy serums. Oh, by the way, even though, even though these testing companies offer food screen, and I would go for it anyway, just as a guide, but it is by no means 
as accurate as the food elimination, which is really what we need to do. So keep that in mind. Again, these dogs are obviously a lot of, allergic to a lot of things. Make sure fleas is one of the things, other insects. Uh, there are really a lot of possibilities. But if you have a dog with chronic allergies, chronic disease, and you find yourself giving like prednisone or atopical, which is cyclosporine, other things that are causing immunosuppression, disease, and um, medications that do have side effects. If you have a young dog or a middle-aged dog, do the test. Find out because you can do some good by desensitizing your dog by administering the actually allergen first in very low doses and then slowly building up. Now, let's talk about those options. Uh, it used to be by injection. So anyone who has a diabetic dog or cat, you're used to giving insulin shots. It's no big deal for you. But for a lot of people, giving a dog shot or for a lot of dogs, getting shots is not something they were going to come to you every day or every other day or every you know couple of times a week. Depends on where you're at in the treatment. So it becomes very, very challenging for you. So now they have a sublingual. It's a little drop that you just put inside the mouth, right? Uh, under, you know, it does not be exactly under the tongue, but they call it sublingual drops. So one might say, well, that's a no-brainer. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm going sublingual. Ah, not, not so fast. When it comes to the injections, you start with every, usually every other day, and you go through your two or three vials, each one stronger, a more concentrated delivery of that which your pet's allergic to until you can give them a lot of it and they no longer react. You start with, uh, typically it's every other day, maybe every third day. And then uh, you get to the next file and now you can start giving it twice a week. And then you go to once a week, then you go to every other week. Ultimately, when you're on maintenance, which could take about six months to get to maintenance, you're giving a shot once a month, maybe even once every six weeks, depending on your pet and how they're reacting. So it's tough at the beginning. You got to go with the shots. You got to you know, learn how to give them. You got to work with your dog. But the good news is down the road, you're given a shot once every four to six weeks. Oh, my God, is that easy. Now, what about the sublingual drops? The drops, they are every day for life. So if you have a dog that you're used to, let's say an older dog that's already on, say, a glucosamine tablet. So it's easy, right? So yeah, then in that case, you're no big deal. You give the pill and you open the mouth, put, put the little dropper in, you're done. No, as long as you can do it. But what happens when you're gone? What happens when you're on vacation? What happens when you, you drop your dog off at daycare or, or a boarding facility for a week? I mean, you got to keep these things in mind. Are they going to be able to give the medication? Are they going to give the medication? So if or me, and fortunately, I've never had a dog so allergic that I needed to do the allergy testing, I'd go for the shot. But then again, I give shots every day. For me, it's a piece of cake. But for some of you, you do have an option now of sublingual. You can switch over from one to the other. There is something called a pulse delivery where you can you take the dog in for that very first set of allergens. You can give the entire first vial in one day. It's done under direct supervision, veterinary supervision, because you want to make sure we don't end up with a an anaphylactic reaction, a hypersensitivity reaction where they just blow up and <laughs> they can't breathe because everything is swelling up because you're giving them the allergy. You're giving them that which they're allergic to. And when you give it to them so in such concentration, it could cause this problem. So you, it's done at the, at the hospital. You have adrenaline ready, epinephrine ready just in case, and steroid ready just in case, and you go through the entire vial by giving a shot every single hour. That takes you through the first vial, and those are the tough ones because that's the ones you're giving every other day. And then you get to the second vial, it's not quite so bad. So that is one option if you want to use the injection, but that first bottle where you're giving them every other day is a little bit frightening for you. Now, do we have to allergy test? 
this is you know really totally up to you. If you have allergies that are clearly seasonal and you see it only spring and summer, pretty much now you know it's not food. Now you pretty much know it's not a household allergen. Why? Because household allergens are there all year. The food you're feeding is probably the food, same food you're feeding all year. So it wouldn't make sense that they're coming up with allergic symptoms only during spring and summer. What is heavy spring and summer are your pollens. So most dogs that have seasonal allergies, you're thinking fleas, uh, unless you live in the, in the southeast where you get fleas all year round. And fleas, you're looking at weeds, grasses, trees, the yeast, fungal infections, et cetera, things that are more prevalent certain times of year than others. So typically, the typical standards were corticosteroids and prednisone was the, probably the big key. And also later on, the cyclosporine. I've never been a really true fan of cyclosporine. I mean, there are a lot of allergists that use it, a lot of dermatologists. I was never a fan. I think it was too immunosuppressive. There was no need for it. If you use prednisone judiciously, if you did it, you, you start with twice a day for three days, then you go to once a day, then you go to every other day. These dogs tolerate it beautifully. But you, and you monitor them, there's no doubt. Now we have two new options that are unbelievable. They're my favorite by far. One is an injection, one is a pill. They're the same company uh, by Zoetis. And it is called Apoquil, which is the pill, and Cytopoint, which is the injection. They are very specific for the canine allergy. They have little to no side effects. I have yet, you can, yes, you go online, you go to Dr. Google, oh my God, this stuff is terrible. I have treated thousands of dogs and have never had a single bad reaction, except maybe a vomiting episode once or twice on the oral version, but that goes away. So I'm a huge fan. And talk to your veterinarian about Apoquil. It's given, what I usually do is I give it, I start, they say for 14 days, I usually go seven to 10, depending on the severity and, and what kind of reaction we get, response. It's you give it twice a day for the first period, and then you go once a day only. And my recommendation is, and it sort of has changed in the industry, when you get to the once a day on Apoquil, you do it in the evening. It's a short half-life, 20 hours. So by the end of the 20 hours, they might start scratching again. And by doing it in the evening, that scratching time would be around four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon, at which point they're probably, everyone's home and you're busy and the dogs are, you know, the kids are playing with the dogs. So they're not thinking about the scratching. Whereas if the four hours that aren't being covered are at four or five in the morning when everybody's still sleeping, the dog has nothing other to do uh, other than being left to his own devices and he's going to scratch like crazy. So twice a day for seven to 10 to 14 days, then you go to once a day, very effective. The only problem is with Apoquil is you, they need to stay on it to fight the allergy. You can't taper it to do every other day typically uh, because of the, the short half-life. So if you stop giving it within a day, they're scratching again. So it's pure, excellent symptomatic relief. The way it works, it's an enzyme block where it blocks these two enzymes that, that are responsible for helping the active agent, all right, a cellular mediator responsible for the allergic response. We call it interleukin-31 or IL-31 for short. IL-31 leaves the T helper cell, goes to the skin, causes all the havoc, but to wreak the havoc, it needs the help of these two enzymes, which is called Janus kinase 1 and Janus kinase 3. For short, we call them JAK1 and JAK3. And the Apoquil is a JAK1, JAK3 blocker. So without JAK1 and JAK3, the interleukin-31 is useless. It's helpless. It can't do its damage. It's amazing. Now, Cytopoint, love it, love it, love it. Cytopoint actually is an immunotherapy that attacks interleukin-31 as soon as it's released from the T helper cells. It never even makes it to the skin, never even needs the help of the JAK1 and JAK3 because it never gets there. It's, it's sort of like Pac-Man. 
you know, the, the Pac-Man, which is the 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 um, injection cytopoint sees the the, the interleukin 31 and just <laughs> attacks it right out of circulation. And so that's very effective, a little more expensive. They used to tell us it's good for four weeks. Um, I I love it. I use it. I mean, I use it a lot. And uh, many of my patients are going, you know, for eight weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, sometimes even longer. So now they're actually making the recommendation, depending on your dog, it's good from anywhere from four to eight weeks. And um, I'm telling you, this stuff is amazing. So talk to your veterinarians about Apoquil and about Cytopoint and see if that doesn't tremendously help your pets. It's so much better. And uh, now, you know, having a great skin antibiotic called Convenia. That's the name because it's so convenient. An injection that's good for two weeks, right? Antibiotics. So you don't, it saves you having to give antibiotics once or twice a day, depending on the antibiotic you choose, for two weeks in a single injection. And now with, now with uh, Cytopoint and Apical, we, uh, we got you covered. Anyway, a lot to digest here. If you have any questions about this, you can always get a hold of me at Dr. Jeff at PetLifeRadio.com. You can also try to get a hold of me online on AirVet. You should, if you haven't downloaded AirVet yet on Apple Store or Google Play, A-I-R-V-E-T will give you direct access to a veterinarian 24-7. You don't need to run to an emergency when your doctor's closed or very busy because you're worried. You don't need to go to Dr. Google. You can talk to a real veterinarian online with visuals right there with the, with the camera uh, on your phones. It's amazing. It's called AirVet. You should download it and use it when you need to. And other than that, we do have a, a question that came in. I'm going to answer next week because I need to do some homework on it about a cat and fiber. Um, can a cat benefit from fiber if it's coming from a flax seed or a flaxseed powder? versus only from fish sources. Um, and I'm going to find out and we will answer this online uh, next week. Anyway, have a great week, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>